This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the Eppendorf and Science Prize for Neurobiology. Are you or one of your colleagues doing great neuroscience? If so, then we encourage you to apply for the prestigious Eppendorf and Science Prize for Neurobiology, an international prize which honors young scientists for outstanding neurobiological research based on methods of molecular, cellular, systems, or organismic biology. Submissions are due June 15th. Visit science.org slash Eppendorf to apply today. Welcome to the Science Podcast for May 11th, 2018. I'm Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, online news editor Catherine Matisik is here with new insights into the history of horse domestication based on ancient human genomes. And Katie Langan, science news intern, talks about how a single salmon gene thought to separate spring and fall runs is spawning fierce debate over protecting endangered species. Now we have Catherine Matisik, an online news editor here at Science. She's here with a story on the earliest horse domesticators. Hi, Catherine. Hi, Sarah. The question we're going to ask and probably not answer to anyone's satisfaction is who first domesticated horses? And it is a tough question. We need to know about the history of horse domestication, which can be figured out through their genes somewhat and artifacts somewhat. And then also we need to somehow link that horse history to human history through location, artifacts, and some genetics. So Catherine, help us out. Help us untangle all these things. Let's start with a rough timeline of when horses were first thought to be domesticated and what the evidence is for that timeline. All right, there's good evidence right now to suggest that the earliest horse domestication took place in Central Asia sometime around 5,000 to 5,500 years ago. There are multiple sites with horse remains and also the remains of ancient corrals where these horses were kept. The evidence for that is actually these you know, post holes in the ground yeah. suggesting that there was an enclosure, but also material that we will say indicates the horses also relieved themselves. A proto-dung heap. Exactly. That's one piece. Another piece is at some of these ancient human settlements, we found pottery shards and pieces of pottery that have the remains of horse milk and also horse meat, because these people didn't just use horses for transportation, but they also used them for food. Let's bring in the people. Who are the proposed first horse domesticators that occupied these sites? The one that we're going to be focusing on today is called the bowtie. And that is not B-O-W-T-I-E. Hmm. It is B-O-T-A-I. Okay. These were a group of hunter-gatherers, a small group that lived in the Eurasian steppe in what is now modern-day Kazakhstan, several thousand years ago. In fact, dates that 
roughly match up with the earliest domestication of horses. Let's not forget about the Yamnaya, though. That's right. So these are their neighbors, the Yamnaya. Now, the Yamnaya are really interesting because for a long time, scholars have pinned the origins of the entire Indo-European language family on these folks. All right. So they have widespread influence. Right, right. Spreading out from the steppes of Central Asia, both east and west. And there is evidence that these were uh, both farmers, but also pastoralists. So they were taking their herds to graze in various locations uh, in this area and kind of spread out. So there's some debate about who really put the first harness on a horse, if you will. That's right. Put the first harness, put the first bit in bridle. It, actually, there is interesting evidence to suggest that the bow tie were using bridles on horses. Some of the teeth oh. uh, in, the, in the horse remains have markings indicative of that. Well, let's get to the current research, which looks at the genetics, not of horses. But of people. Right. One of the theories is that the Yamnaya were the ones to actually first domesticate horses that the Bowtai learned from the Yamnaya how to domesticate horses. And a lot of this is predicated on the idea that the Yamnaya are farmers and they're herders, and the Bowtai were just a very tiny little group of hunter-gatherers. So what the researchers in this new study decided to do was sequence the DNA of about 74 ancient humans. And these included both Yamnaya and Bowtai individuals who had lived across Eurasia from about 5,500 to 3,500 years ago. What were they looking for within the genomes that might suggest something about horse domestication? So what they were looking for was evidence of this Yamnaya spread. And the idea was that if these people had spread physically and had spread these practices throughout Central Asia and even into modern-day Europe, there would be evidence that they had perhaps had liaisons. And basically, those liaisons would then show up in the DNA. The idea is that if we find evidence that these groups were intermingling and mating, then maybe that lends some support to this cultural diffusion. Oh, and we haven't said what happened yet. Oh, yeah, we haven't. All right. <laughs> okay. So the results are unclear. Okay. Um, basically, when they sequenced these three bowtie individuals, they found no evidence of Yamnaya DNA. And what that suggested to researchers is that it's possible that the bowtie, in fact, were the original domesticators of horses, that they had not picked this up from extended contact with the Yamnaya. All right. This brings up my least favorite tongue twister. Evidence of absence is not absence. No. Absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. I think that that, despite the difficulty, in, in, is, is an appropriate way of portraying this. What's next is this, this doesn't confirm or deny that bowtie were the original horse domesticators. That's right. And so researchers are going to keep digging. They're already in the process of conducting much more widespread mm -hmm. genetic analyses of the steppe people. And by the steppe people, I mean all the groups that inhabited this area for thousands of years. There are also other concurrent studies looking to find remains of horses from about 5,000 to 4,000 years ago, which is where we actually have a gap mm. in the archaeological record. One other thing to consider is that like cats and dogs, horses may have been domesticated more than once. So this is another possibility that researchers are talking about as they 
sift through the evidence. Okay, thank you, Catherine. Thanks, Sarah. What else is on the site this week? We have a story on the origins of a killer frog fungus, and we have another piece on how one of the Milky Way's fastest stars is actually an invader from another galaxy. On Science Insider, our policy blog, we have an explainer on how Trump's withdrawal from the Iran nuclear deal could affect research, and another story on Australia revealing the budget for its new space agency. Catherine Matisik is an online editor for the news site. You can read about early horse domestication and more at sciencemag.org news. Stay tuned for an interview with Katie Langan on a single salmon gene that's having a big impact. Now we have Katie Langan. She's an intern here at Science, and she wrote a feature story this week on a single gene that may be used to protect a population of salmon. This all starts with spring versus fall run Chinook salmon. What is the difference between these fish? Yeah, so up and down the West Coast, we see Chinook salmon migrating at different times. And so we have spring run Chinook that leave the ocean, migrate upriver. In the spring, they hold over in freshwater ponds for many months and they reach sexual maturity in these ponds. They pack a lot of fat with them in order to do that. They don't actually eat in the rivers when they're reaching sexual maturity. And then they, after that, migrate further upriver to spawn. And these springers are acting very differently compared to what we call fall-run salmon. So these are salmon that actually reach maturity in the ocean before they head upriver, and they head up later in the fall and basically spawn as soon as they reach their spawning grounds. They don't go as far upriver. They spawn lower down in the watershed compared to these springers that really go high up into the upper tributaries. So they have different timings of when they're doing what, and they also have different body constitutions at different times of the year. So that's important for people who eat them. Correct, yes. So the native tribes really coveted the spring salmon because they were chock full of fat and they're really delicious. And that goes for fishermen to this day. You know, they really prize these spring run salmon in particular. And so they're really culturally important. They're economically important. And, you know, they're really distinct in terms of what they're doing compared to these later runs of fall run salmon. And they also have dealt differently with impacts to the environment. These spring run salmon, they migrate far upriver to the uppermost tributaries, and they've been more heavily impacted by dams because of that. They also spend a lot more time in freshwater because they hold over for many months, and so they're impacted by things like water diversions for agriculture, logging activity, mining activity. And so they've undergone precipitous declines because of that compared to the fall-run salmon. It was thought that they were pretty much genetically identical. Not like they're all twins or clones, but that the genes in their population were distributed pretty equally. Everybody's got the same amount of diversity in the spring and in the fall. Yeah, they look fairly similar genetically. There are a couple of exceptions In most areas, study after study has shown that within a river, the spring-run salmon look similar to the fall-run salmon. They don't look similar to spring-run salmon elsewhere. But then the question is, what makes a spring-run salmon run in the spring? Exactly. So the assumption that scientists, you know, made... I think based on reasonable data, it was that in each river, the spring-run salmon evolved separately. So from a stock of fall-run salmon, they assumed that it was fairly easy to evolve spring-run salmon. And that was because 
you know, you see this genetic relatedness between spring and fall run salmon. And so they basically assume that each river had evolved its own, you know, mm-hmm. distinct runs. The implication there is if we lost one of those runs, it would be easy for it to re-evolve. And that was the prevailing paradigm for, for decades based on all of these genetic studies. And now there is a new study or a new finding that a single gene is responsible for separating spring and fall run. Can you talk about what that gene is thought to do and, and how it was found? Mike Miller, who's at the University of California in Davis, he and his colleagues um, took a bunch of samples from Chinook, Chinook salmon as well as steelhead salmon in rivers across California, Oregon, and Washington. They looked at a wide swath of the genome, and so they used this method that entailed chopping the genome up into tiny pieces, looked at a subset of those pieces, and were able to identify places in the genome that looked different between spring and fall run salmon. And when they were able to piece together where those locations were, they actually all tied back to this one gene called GREB1L. It's not entirely clear what this gene does. It may interact with a sex hormone to influence the expression of other genes. But I think the critical thing is that if you have two copies of the early run version of this gene, it looks like you migrate upriver in the spring. If Mm -hmm. you have two copies of the fall run version of the gene, you migrate upriver in the fall. And if you have one of each, you actually migrate at an intermediate time. What does this say about that theory you were talking about earlier, that each river individually had the separation into spring and fall from the same population, and then that could happen over and over again as needed? It actually turns out when you look at the DNA sequences that basically this gene looks to have evolved one time in the species history and then spread across these different rivers And so it didn't evolve multiple times in different rivers. It evolved one time, sometime in the last 10 to 15 million years. And so that really changes the equation in terms of how easy it would be to recover spring runs if they were to be lost. It looks like it's not something that's going to re-evolve in timescales that are of interest to conservation. Yeah, I was going to say, meaningful for us, right? Well, what does this mean then for regulation, for protecting species? Is this going to be a case where a single gene is allowed to distinguish between two populations and and say we have to protect both spring and fall separately? Yeah, so there had been a petition in 2011 to list spring-run salmon separately in the Klamath River, which spans California and Oregon. There's precedent for listing distinct runs under the Endangered Species Act because you can actually list distinct populations. They don't have to be full-fledged species. They can be distinct populations, but there are some criteria that you need to meet. The assessment at that time was that the spring-run salmon in that river weren't distinct enough. But these new data really changed that equation because now we can point to a single gene that does distinguish between spring and fall-run salmon. But now the question is, should we be listing populations and classifying them as distinct based on a single gene? Is that enough to justify federal protection. I mean, I'm sure someone would argue, well, they have distinct behaviors, they have distinct physiology, and there's a gene that makes them different. I mean, doesn't that seem like a separate enough thing? Yeah, so there are definitely scientists who agree with you on that, that this meets the bar, that they should be listed separately. But there are other scientists who say, you know, we really should be stepping back and taking a look at 
a species entire genome. And when we do that with these populations, you know, the spring and fall run salmon look pretty similar. And we shouldn't be just focusing on one gene to make listing decisions. And the debate is really feisty. There are people with very strong opinions about this. And, you know, I think the interesting part of it is there's not a clear answer. And even veterans of these kinds of debates are saying, you know, we need to have a debate about this because this is a problem that's going to crop up in the future. Right. And we could really be on the leading edge of having to make decisions like this based on genomic data. So what happens next? What's going to happen with the with the salmon runs? Are people taking this to court? Are regulators considering looking at this again? There's a tribe in California, the Karuk tribe, and they filed a petition in November to NOAA. And NOAA has agreed to reconsider the listing status of the spring run on the Klamath River. The comment period for that closed last week, and NOAA is slated to make a decision sometime in the next year on that. I know that a number of other groups are, are watching this and are potentially planning to file petitions depending on how this plays out. Is this going to happen more and more as, as genetics becomes more accessible to people? The costs are coming down. It's becoming a lot easier to do this. So a lot of people think that we could see more examples like this where genomic data are really pointing us in a new direction in terms of thinking about genetic distinctiveness, you know, how we should potentially be using genetic data to conserve populations and conserve species. And so a lot of people view this as a potential test case for how we're going to use genomic data going forward. Okay, Katie, thank you so much. Thank you. Katie Langen is an intern for the Science News Department. She writes about the big impact of a single salmon gene this week in science. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts, or visit us at our website, sciencemag.org slash podcasts, where you can listen or read more about the research and news stories discussed in the episode. This show was produced by Sarah Crespi and edited by Podigy. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. Support for the podcast comes from Wondery's new series, American Innovators. Science and technology have transformed the world we live in. But how did we get here? On Wondery's new series, American Innovators, you'll hear the stories behind DNA and the mapping of the human genome, the rise of the personal computer, artificial intelligence, and more. Don't miss a single episode. Search for American Innovations on Apple Podcasts, wherever you're listening right now, or head to wondery.fm slash science. That's wondery, W-O-N-D-E-R-Y dot F-M slash science. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science. But did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join.